I'm Afshin Ratansi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. African nations face mounting pressure from NATO nations to support their war on Russia through Ukraine, especially since Vladimir Putin's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's groundbreaking tour of African nations, culminating in joint military drills between the armies of Russia and South Africa. With me today is Professor Adekeye Adebajo, former director of the Institute for Pan-African Thought and Conversation at the University of Johannesburg, who served on UN missions in South Africa. He's also the author of the new book, Boutros Boutros Ghali, Afro-Arab Pro Prophet, Proselytizer, Pharaoh and Pope, one of the very few written works on the UN's first African-Arab Secretary General, whose contributions, he says, have been erased by NATO nation scholars. Professor Adebajo joins me now from Johannesburg in South Africa. Thank you so much, Professor, for uh, joining us. Before we get to the book, I must ask, and I should say a, a book about a UN Secretary General that wasn't assassinated, unlike uh, Dag Hammarskjöld, famously. Your view of uh, Lavrov's visit uh, to Africa. I mean, uh, in NATO nation media, I don't. I know you were in Nigeria at the time during the visit, but uh, I mean, all but condemning a South African counterpart Naledi Pandor uh, for uh, joint Russia-South Africa, perhaps China military drills. Uh, uh, I suppose there's a class divide in all these sorts of things. Elites in South Africa looking down at the uh, government in South Africa for doing anything with Russia and uh, a different story for the masses? Well, thank you very much. And I have to say, I'm at the University of Pretoria, even though I'm based in Johannesburg. I think the Lavrov visit and the whole Ukraine issue has divided opinion in South Africa generally. I think it's also important to note that among the ruling African National Congress elite, many of them were educated and received military training in the Soviet Union at the time. And there's thus a lot of sympathy for Russia generally. Um, and the West at the time, particularly the US and Britain, under Reagan and Thatcher was supporting the apartheid uh, regime against which the ANC was fighting. So those dynamics are quite important to understanding South African positions. And I think, I don't think it's as clear as elite and mass divide because among many of the black elite that I talk to, um, they may not necessarily support the Russian aggression against Ukraine, but they tend to be very critical of what they see as Western hypocrisy and actions like the US intervention in Iraq, which was done without UN authorization. So there's a divide. It's not so straightforward. Russia, of course, doesn't says it wasn't even an, an aggression, compares it to, I don't know, was Tanzania uh, going into Uganda in 1978 an aggression? You, you don't uh, also believe that uh, NATO mainstream media is running this story nonstop. Russia is starving Africa. Um, I know Lavrov called for NATO countries to allow fertilizer to be given to Africa from Russia. Um, I know it's not perhaps being starved of weapons leaking out perhaps from the Ukraine conflict into uh, Islamist groups as uh, from previous wars. Uh, is Russia starving Africa? Um, I wouldn't put it as crudely as that, but obviously the conflict, and I do see it actually as, a, as an act of aggression. That's the way I see it, just as I see the U.S. intervention in Iraq as an act of aggression. And I think both 
need to be condemned. That's the way that non-alignment is meant to work. But I think there different and maybe triple crises that have affected Africa. The COVID crisis obviously was one, the debt crisis is another, and I think the fact that a lot of the food and grain that Africa is getting is from Russia and Ukraine obviously also exacerbated that issue. But I wouldn't put it as crudely as Russia starving Africa. Actually, just on the aggression point, since we are addressing a UN Secretary General, uh, the subject of your uh, book, I mean, you're saying you see it as aggression, so you'd see the invasion of France by the Allies in 1943 as an act of aggression as well. But France was actually attacked by Nazi Germany. Well, no, it was a Vichy, no, it was a Vichy France. It, they, there was a government in France, wasn't there? Anyway, I don't want to yeah, get too long into the idea of aggression yeah, because... I, I think maybe we should focus maybe on our issues, but I don't think there's much debate that Nazi Germany was the aggressor in the Second World War. I think we can all agree with... Uh, I think we can all agree with that one. So why choose Boutros Boutros Ghali as the subject of the biography? I mean, he's noted, noted uh, uh, by some to be an apologist for French war crimes, of course, in what was Zaire, uh, rolling over to US-Israel uh, uh, priorities uh, in Palestine. What, why did you choose uh, Boutros Boutros Ghali? The, the first reason is that uh, out of the former eight UN Secretaries General that we've had since the current one, Antonio Guterres, there has been no biography in English on Boutros Boutros Ghali. The only one has been by a former French diplomat and ambassador at the UN. And I thought there was a conscious erasure by some Western scholars of Boutros Ghali's achievements and records. I am also, as an academic myself, really interested in the most intellectually accomplished UN Secretary General on record. I mean, Boutroscali uh, got his PhD from the Sorbonne in France. He published over a hundred scholarly articles. He wrote the first book on the United Nations in the Arab language. And was a very accomplished international law scholar before he came into office. He also was the first African and the first Arab United Nations Secretary General, of course. And he occupied the office at a really significant time when the Cold War between Russia and the US had thawed after 45 years, and when UN peacekeeping was greatly expanded and there was an opportunity to resolve some of the regional conflicts caused by the Cold War. So yeah, remind us what year. Remind us what years he was there. He died in, uh, in what, 2016, but he was UN Secretary General? Between 1992 and 1996. So Yugoslavia, the sanctions on Iraq... And uh, actually, Madeleine Albright, let's go straight to that figure. Who She's in your book, not a great friend of Boutros Boutros Ghali. Uh, people can watch the clip of Madeleine Albright, Clinton's uh, Secretary of State, celebrating, some people say, uh, but certainly arguing that the deaths of 500,000 Iraqi children are a price worth paying uh, for U.S. interests in the Middle East. 
they didn't get on. No, not at all. Madeleine Albright uh, was the U.S. ambassador at the United Nations at the time that Boutros Boutros-Ghali was there. And she basically found him arrogant. Uh, she found him dismissive of her own diplomatic and intellectual skills. And Boutros was somebody who was a patrician. You know, he'd, he, he came from uh, Egypt's 200 families. His grandfather had been prime minister of Egypt, assassinated in 1910. He had two uncles who were foreign minister. And he'd been deputy foreign minister of Egypt for 14 years himself. He knew his worth. And he came from a very solid family background and believed in noblesse oblige, the obligations of rank. And so he didn't really kowtow to Madeleine Albright just because she was a U.S. ambassador and believed that she almost seemed to think that because she was a representative of the U.S., whatever she said was law. She didn't need to kind of convince the other 14 members of the UN Security Council. So it was clear that these two personalities were going to clash. And I think another final point that's important is that the powers of the UN Secretary General are very limited. And the big powers on the Security Council often say that they prefer a secretary to a general. And the US therefore thought that Butroskali was too independent-minded and too assertive. They wanted him to be more compliant and to do what the U.S. wanted him to do. So those were really the sources of the clash between the two. I mean, clearly we invite Antonio Guterres on, who isn't African or Arab, and will no doubt say, you know what? Pressures are there right now. You don't mention, I don't think, the uh, direct WikiLeaks Snowden uh, allegations or revelations that the UN Secretary General Kofi uh, uh, Annan, uh, his successor, Boutros Boutros Ghali's successor, was bugged by the CIA and uh, MI6. Uh, I don't know whether you found in your research whether Boutros Boutros Ghali's office was uh, bugged, but uh, you do you do say that uh, Boutros Boutros Ghali, a, a religious man, uh, in a way. I just was, wanted um, to say something on your point that Boutros was religious. Boutros of course, was a Coptic Christian, which is a minority in Egypt. And he wasn't, he didn't see himself as really particularly religious. Uh, he was, he, he of course went to church as a child and had some beliefs, but as he grew older, he seemed to see these more as ancestral customs and traditions. But he did often quote from the Bible and he did at least have respect for the Coptic uh, Christian religion. Do you think uh, if Boutros Boutros Ghali was still alive and a UN Secretary General, he would have allowed uh, it to pass that the European Union uh, equivalent of Foreign Minister Joseph Borrell said, Europe is a garden, most of the rest of the world is a jungle. Something redolent of the kind of, uh, well, it's throughout your book, implicit, the racism against Boutros Boutros Ghali. Europe is the garden, the rest of the world is a jungle. Yes, it was a rather unfortunate uh, comment. And, I, you know, Boutros Ghali 
did not suffer fools gladly. He knew his worth, he knew his intelligence. And, you know, he, he, he was even brazen enough to tell the powerful Western powers on the UN Security Council that they were focusing on Bosnia because that was a rich man's war and they were neglecting Africa's orphan conflict. And when he was asked why he was being given such a rough time by the British media over Bosnia, he said quite candidly, because I am a wog. So Butruskali knew racism, he'd experienced it, and he was very outspoken uh, about it, but he didn't kind of harp on it because he relied also on his intellect. He knew that he was, you know, he, he could basically, as a university professor, also get by. Professor Adeke Adebajo, I'll stop you there. More from the author of Boutros Boutros Ghali, Afro-Arab prophet, proselytizer, pharaoh and pope, after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Professor Adeke Adabajo, the former director of the Institute for Pan-African Thought and Conversation at the University of Johannesburg. On Yugoslavia, and it has to be said, I mean, obviously on Iraq and those sanctions, some secretary generals might have resigned over half a million deaths in Iraq. Uh, as regards the Yugoslavia, uh, I'm not sure whether you think that was aggression, NATO uh, bombing Yugoslavia and destroying that uh, uh, place uh, completely. Why, why was he not more vocal in stopping up the breakup of Yugoslavia, which NATO went for? Uh, time and time again during his tenure, and, and that was the worst war since the Second World War. That was the beginning of things, maybe even the seeds of the Ukraine war. Well, you see, I mean, my understanding of the Yugoslav wars is that these were wars of secession. So you had warlords, basically, Serb, Croat, uh, Muslim warlords who were basically seeking to carve out ethnically pure territories. What I think you can accuse the West of is neglect, undue caution, and failure to intervene. To wait, wait, wait. Sorry, sorry. I've got. I'm sorry, Professor. I, I've, uh, what? <laughs> There are so many books now about the war in Yugoslavia. Noam Chomsky, who's been on this show in the past few weeks, has written some of them. This was nothing to do with the ignorance of what was going on. This was a deliberate attempt to destroy the last bastion of something approaching anti-neoliberalism in Europe. It was something quite, uh, quite different uh, to that. Uh, let's get on to something nice no, about let, it. Let, 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 let me just make a final point, please, if I may. I wasn't trying to say they were ignorant about it, because don't forget that France and Britain had troops on the ground. I'm saying more that they were being unduly cautious about stopping slaughter. So when Well, the no, the detractors say they started it. Hang on, the detractors say it was a deliberate attempt to carve up Yugoslavia after the German recognition of Croatia in the first place. But anyway, I don't want to get too into Yugoslav politics. I would yeah. say that, uh, you know, the uh, leaders in Belgrade certainly don't uh, say that they were warlords. This was a deliberate attempt by NATO and Washington and Madeleine Albright and others 
to, to carve up Yugoslavia. Uh, interesting that you mention Eritrea and Ethiopia and Boutros Boutros Ghali, because in the past few months, perhaps in the past year or so, some have accused uh, NATO nations of trying to drum up uh, Tigray rebellion there against the peace process that has been successful between Asmara and Addis Ababa. Why was Boutros Boutros Ghali uh, remarkably even-handed, even as the NATO nations were involved in, you know, some people call it the Live Aid War, uh, desperately backing uh, the war on Eritrea uh, from the then uh, Ethiopian dictator. Um, the, the, civil, the, the civil war in Ethiopia had been going on for 30 years, as you know, since the 60s till 1991 when Melis and his troops basically took over Addis. And Melis was able to consolidate his hold on power. And the war between Ethiopia and Eritrea, the border war that happened between the two, broke out later. But Boudreaux had left office by the time that that border war broke out. It was while Kofi Annan was the UN Secretary General. I mean, clearly, um, yeah, and, and he's uh, not following the NATO line on, on Eritrea there in the book. Given your previous scholarly work, and I know this biography is a, is a scholarly, disinterested look at uh, uh, the former Secretary General of the United Nations, it's clear that you damn him with faint praise when you talk about his uh, betrayal of the non-aligned movement uh, time and time again, although you couch it in more nuanced prose, perhaps. Why did he betray it? Why did he... Uh, I understand he went to uh, Yugoslavia and in front of Tito uh, thought he did a good job as he attacked Cuba uh, over Angola, where, of course, uh, the seeds of uh, Angola's position today, who knows, with Lavrov's visit, still uh, were sown from Havana. I think it's important we put this in context because I was talking about his interaction with the non-aligned movement, not when he was... UN Secretary General, but when he was Deputy Foreign Minister of Egypt. And what he was trying to do then was having negotiated a peace treaty with Israel, which the Arab world overwhelmingly rejected. He was trying to prevent Egypt's isolation diplomatically and otherwise at the non-aligned movement. And I think he sometimes acted very clumsily in the way he engaged with respected leaders of the non-aligned movement like Castro and others, uh, and you know, sometimes nearly lost support. But in the end, most members of the non-aligned uh, movement um, supported or at least agreed not to expel Egypt, as many of the Arab and radical uh, countries in the NAM had wanted to happen. Would it have made any difference if he'd been Secretary General when NATO destroyed uh, Africa's richest per capita country, Libya? And, uh, well, so the opponents of the war say basically uh, led up to the assassination of Muammar Gaddafi? You know, I think it's very important to recognize, as I said earlier, the very limited uh, powers of the United Nations Secretary General. He's basically a servant of the Security Council and the powerful members 
especially the permanent five veto wielding powers who manipulate. Wait, wait, Professor. Well, why, US. why then do they bug Kofi Annan, his successor? We know from the Snow Snowden had to run off. Why bug his office if it has no power? No, the CIA you can and MI6. Bug an office. You, you can bug an office to find out what is being discussed uh, in order to know what position to take on Yugoslavia, on Iraq. Well, or it must on be slightly Libya. important then, being Secretary General. Well, it's important in so far as you deal with other world leaders, you know. So the, the AU office has also been accused of being bugged. Bugs have been found there as well, but I wouldn't say that the chair of the African Union Commission, Musafaki, is particularly powerful. It's a matter of it could be. information. The position of African Union <laughs> boss could be. It could be, but I, I would argue that in practice, Boutros often had to do things that he instinctively would not have had to do. He had to bow to power. One of the things he complained about the most were the sanctions on not just Iraq, but on Libya. And he wrote his memoirs in 1999 after he left power, after he left office, um, which really was a stinging indictment of the US in particular. And there he made very clear how unfair and one-sided and unbalanced he found the Western sanctions on both Iraq and Libya. So there were lots they of They always do it afterwards, he... don't they? I mean, most ordinary men and women around the world, if they find that what they're doing is somehow giving an imprimatur to the mass murder of uh, one colleague, let alone uh, the killing, wounding or displacing of tens of millions of men, women and children, they resign their position. So we're being quite... Uh... I yeah, I, I would actually argue that it's a minority of people who are principled enough to resign. I think most people make calculations that, you know, this is either benefiting them personally or they make a calculation, as I think Butros Ghali did, that even though some of these things I'm being asked to do are awful, they're good things that I'm able to do in Liberia in Sierra Leone, in other places, to support regional peacekeepers who are trying to save lives and provide humanitarian relief to people in distress. Well, I Professor, think those are the kinds of calculations for me that were being made. Well, Professor, you're clearly not making a calculation personally when you advocate Pax Africana. That's not going to get you invited to any IMF or World Bank conferences. Just tell us, what is Pax Africana? And, uh, who do you believe uh, we should watch out for who are going to be advocating this 21st century for Africa? Obviously now uh, in the spotlight, partly because of the war in Ukraine as new global alliances are forged. Pax Africana is basically a concept that was developed in 1967 by one of my intellectual mentors, the late Kenyan academic Ali Mazrui. And the basic idea is that outsiders should stay out of the continent of Africa and let Africans resolve their own conflict. And he explained that through the concept and principle of continental jurisdiction, almost like a Monroe Doctrine for Africa. And he further argued 
that through the principle of racial sovereignty, intra-African interventions by African states themselves in neighboring countries was more legitimate than those by outsiders. Today... It's a bit like Gaddafi, right? That's the same kind of thing that uh, Muammar Gaddafi advocated. Gaddafi was actually inspired by Kwame Nkrumah. So Gaddafi, in terms of his foreign policy, was certainly an heir to Kwame Nkrumah in trying to champion a kind of pan-African security architecture. So isn't there a problem? Clearly there's a problem with anyone who advocates that, uh, who has power, not in an academic way, not in any uh, way by a politician after power. They get killed. Well, you know, my view is really Gaddafi wasn't killed for championing pan-Africanism. Or get overthrown. Nkrumah, Nkrumah didn't do well either. Nor did Lumumba. Yeah, Krumer, Nor did Patrice Lumumba. Yeah, there, there, I, actually, there I've got a list. You recent, know. There has been recent literature that shows that the CIA was involved in getting rid of Kwame Nkrumah, and that's been very meticulously uh, documented in a book called White Mischief that's recently just come out. Um, but I would argue that Gaddafi was not necessarily assassinated for championing pan-Africanism. He was assassinated for opposing uh, Western positions and uh, issues like Lockerbie and other issues from the past. I think that's more... Yeah, OK, but we can um, keep it to Nkrumah or Lumumba or... Where the West or... had a problem with... Yeah. You know... Yeah, Lumumba, I think, would be the closest to that because uh, it was clear that Belgium and the US in particular had a hand in getting rid of Patrice Lumumba because he was seen as this radical nationalist. So there, in 1961, I would concede that. Well, after whom a university in uh, Moscow was named, Patrice Lumumba, Professor Adeke Adebajo. Thank you so much for joining us. That's it for the show. We'll be back next Saturday with a brand new episode, but until then, you can still keep in touch via all our social media. If it's not censored in your country, but you can always head to our channel, Going Underground TV on rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you very soon.